The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. How you doing, Grace? Good to see you guys. I'm so excited to be able to be here with you. Uh, I wasn't so excited to be introduced as the founding pastor because that's officially old. Like, you know, that's, you know, that's it. But hey, uh, open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter five. Uh, We are starting a brand new sermon series. Uh, We're talking about hashtag blessed. I'm not cool enough to do that. Hashtag blessed. And uh, so so we're we're gonna be talking about uh, basically a cultural phenomenon that's been taking place. And that is the hashtags, right? And and the idea of hashtag blessed. And usually the idea of hashtag blessed means something that it wouldn't mean to us and certainly wouldn't mean to scripture. We'll we'll hear things like, you know, I'm so blessed. Hashtag blessed, I'm from my, my beautiful wife. Hashtag blessed, we're at a great vacation. Hashtag blessed, I have a Ferrari. Hashtag blessed, you know. I mean, just all that kind of stuff. And it's all kind of rooted in and based on what we kind of accumulate, what we possess, what we have. It's definitely something that's external, not internal. And so we're gonna look at uh, the Beatitudes. We're gonna look at Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And this is basically these, these teachings that we're gonna go over over the next eight weeks. What they are basically is Jesus's ethical teachings. Jesus's ethical teachings. And today we're gonna to be looking at one of the great obstacles to the spiritual life and that is pride, right? And so what I'd like to do right now is I just wanna kinda of just jump in here and uh, read all of these scriptures if we can. We're not gonna focus on all of them together. All we're gonna to do today is we're gonna look at uh, verses uh, five, one through three. But let's read it all so that we can get a context for what we're looking at here. Here we go. Chapter five, verse one. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm kind of reading out of the NIV here. You might have an ESV. So if you want to follow along exactly, it's not all that different, but uh, if you want to follow along in the NIV, you can just read it up on the screen. Here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, well, let's go back to verse one. Uh, We're gonna be kind of running through this with a a little bit uh, of clarity, hopefully, to help us understand what we're talking about here. This is Jesus' sermon. This is is the preeminent teaching that Jesus has on ethics in the Bible, okay? And so it starts with, in in verse one, it starts, it says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, who are these crowds? Who are these people that are following Jesus? He finds himself up on a mountain. We'll talk about that in a second, but if you'll uh, just join me uh, in chapter four, so you can just go back one uh, one, uh, uh, chapter here. And this is what it says Uh, in Matthew chapter four, verse 23. Who are these people that are following Jesus? 
Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus has basically done a series of miracles, and people are following him around now. They're basically just kind of uh, groupies, if you will. They're following around. They're interested in him. They're not fully committed to who he is. They are interested in kind of the magic guy. Like, he can do some incredible things that nobody else can do. There are some disciples that are scattered in with this, but it says here that he was going throughout Galilee, look at the two underlined words there, teaching and healing. Um, many, many months ago, I talked to the Orlando campus and I said, listen, our mission at Grace is to help people take their next step toward Christ. That's been the mission since day one. By the way, today, today, we celebrate 17 years of Grace. 17 years, yeah. God's been good, he's been faithful. And from the very beginning, helping people take their next steps toward Christ was our mission and is our mission. It's going to continue to be. But how we live that out is basically doing the same things that Jesus is doing. We teach and we heal, we teach and we heal. Now listen, the reason why Jesus did both of these things is because they actually related to one another. Now, Jesus' healing ministry, whether he was casting out a demon or whether he was uh, healing a blind man or healing somebody who had been paralyzed for his whole life, that was to demonstrate God's power and the fact that God was with Jesus uh, so that his teaching ministry would be considered. Now, the teaching ministry, now see, if we think about it, if he was focused solely on the healing ministry as an ends in itself, then I think we could say that Jesus failed. Why? Well, because everybody who was healed eventually got sick again and died. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, got sick again and eventually died. And so his healing was just to demonstrate the power in his teaching. But when Jesus' teaching hit people's hearts, it transformed them from the inside out. They become fundamentally different kinds of people. And that teaching actually had not just an effect in the here and now, but it had an effect that transformed their entire life, their whole life here and their eternity. And so what we wanna be about at Grace is this teaching and healing ministry, right? This is why you know, we raise money for a counseling center. And this is why down the road, my desire is not just to have one counseling center at one campus. I mean, my desire is to have numerous counseling centers around Central Florida because the world is filled with tons of brokenness right now. I mean, I know you know this because you live in the real world and people are struggling. We live divided today. We live hurt today. And so I wanna talk about that a little bit. This teaching ministry that God has put in place, we want to do that in Central Florida. We want to disciple people, whether it's through counseling or biblical teaching focused on the scriptures. We wanna do that because we want to bring the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. The word gospel itself means good news. And we want the world and the community to see the good news of Jesus Christ through practical ways. But now one of the great challenges with all of this is that you know, this teaching ministry that God has given to us and this healing ministry that he's given to us, um, it's sometimes missed by people. And that's this. Have you ever wondered why so many people are more broken today? And here's, 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 here's just my hypothesis on this. I'm just gonna put this in front of you, right? This is my reasoning for this. I think people are more broken today and more hurt today because there are these, to them, there are these invisible laws and rules. Now listen, again, if you're here today and you're not necessarily a follower of Jesus, you're just kind of checking out this, this church, I want you to understand that there are certain things that we believe because we have hidden, this is what King David said in the Old Testament, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you, right? It is this idea that the Bible is not something that's meant to be kept out here, but it's meant to be in here. As the scriptures wash over us, as the scriptures become part of us, it changes the way we think, it changes the way we feel, it certainly changes what we do. But if you're not aware of that, if you're not aware of God's 
principles, his laws, his ideas. What ends up happening is as you're making decisions, and this is kind of how we all live, we're just taking next steps, we're just taking next steps. And as we're walking through life, sometimes what happens is that we just kind of hit an invisible wall. We don't even know it, but all of a sudden we feel terrible, we feel awful, we kind of get wrecked. Now I have a hypothesis and it's this, and I don't hold me to the numbers because they're not scientific in any way. They're completely anecdotal. But I actually believe that probably somewhere in the 75 to 80% of the suffering that goes on in the world is suffering that is absolutely and completely avoidable. And about 20% of that, and again, numbers are just irrelevant, but 20% of that maybe is stuff that you're, you're never just, like Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You're gonna have trouble because we live in a broken world, a fallen world, and it's just kind of like, it's just kind of messy. And so an example of that would be like you're sitting at, you're sitting at an intersection one day and uh, you're just, you know, you're going along and life seems great. You're just taking steps in life. You're moving along. And all of a sudden, somebody just T-bones your car and your husband's gone. You T-bones your car, your, heart, your, your wife is gone. That's nothing that you did. That's not your responsibility. It's just part of living in a broken, fallen world. And ultimately, you're gonna suffer as a result of that. That's the 20%. We had something like that happen uh, this week. We are part of a... We, we have uh, basically four campuses, but one of them is like a missional campus. It's at Edgewood Boys and Girls Ranch. And there's a guy named Stuart Eldridge who's out there. And he is the, he's been out there for 38 years. And he's been the leader of it for quite some time now. Well, we were sitting in staff meeting and all of a sudden I just, you know, Grant, one of our pastors comes up to me. He whispers in my ear, Stuart was out, he was uh, trimming some trees that morning and he's vigorous. This guy is like big guy. He's out there tr trimming some trees. He says, I feel a little bit bad. And so he just kind of walks to his wife and sees her for just a couple of minutes. He says, I feel really bad. And he just collapsed and he died right then. Like it was terrible. And that's the kind of suffering that's unavoidable. Like she and her two boys, they're gonna grieve that for a long time. That's ne they're never gonna be able to go, yeah, I don't remember that. You know, that's, they're always gonna have the stain and the, and, and the trouble that goes along with that. But there's 80%, I think, 80% of the decisions that we make in life can either lead to suffering or they can lead to blessing. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford professor said this, we never break God's laws. We don't. God's laws are immutable. That word means unchangeable and enduring. We never break God's wall, laws. We break ourselves over God's laws. So just like somebody who slams into a wall and the wall is not gonna move, but you're gonna get hurt. You're gonna get wrecked. There are all kinds of things because people don't know the scriptures. They don't know boundaries. And when they cross those boundaries, what ends up happening is that they hurt and they don't know why. And so Jesus, he's, he says, I'm gonna be about teaching and healing. Like I'm gonna heal you because you're broken. You live in a fallen world. I'm gonna fix you just for a little while but I want the teaching to penetrate your heart so that you can be fixed permanently once and for all. Because here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna live in this life in such a way that we're gonna kind of hit some of these walls. It's gonna hurt. We're gonna repent. We're gonna move in a different direction. We're gonna make choices. But there's so many who are completely blinded to these principles and where these walls are. So what ends up happening is people fall in pit after pit after pit and the stain of that on their hearts and the stain of that in their souls, they carry it with them for all their life. And you know what I mean when I talk about a stain on the soul, right? I mean, you have that. All of us do. We've got something, and I'm not going to name it, but we've got something that just has, we've carried it with us for a long time. We've got something that we did, and it's horrible. And we thought, if anybody ever knew it, man, nobody would care about me. They just pushed me right out of the church. Or maybe it wasn't you. It was something that was done to you a long time ago. 
and you've carried that stain forever. But one day, one day that stain will be healed. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But right now it's kind of filled with, we're filled with brokenness. We're filled with that kind of suffering, struggle and hardship and difficulty. But this is not what Jesus' teaching was about. Jesus' teaching was about helping us to be able to be blessed. Now I know sometimes when you hear that, it might sound like some kind of like motivational speech or some kind of pop psychology. But actually Jesus, when he was talking about this concept of blessedness, has a, a really deep root into it. Like the word blessed. Okay, let's take a look at the scripture again. Let's take a look at the scripture again. It says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Back in the first century, teachers sat down and students stood up. And so he finds this area and it's not just his 12 disciples who are with him. It is all the disciples from chapter four that are following him around. So this is hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who have gathered around. He's sitting on a rock. He's overlooking the people and he begins to teach. He begins to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what, is, what does that mean? It means, so the word blessed is the Greek word makarios. Now, why is that important? Because it sounds cool? No, here's the reason why. Because Jesus is actually teaching right now in um, most, most of the New Testament is Greek, but he's actually teaching in the language of Aramaic, which is like an old Hebrew. But he uses, when he, when he's, so he's talking in this one language, and then all of a sudden when he says blessed or blessed, right? He uses a Greek word. And this word would have populated a lot of intention for the people of the first century. He goes, blessed, makarios. Makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? So the word makarios actually, it it deals with um, the ancient Greek gods. And it's really interesting that Jesus, being God himself, references false gods of the Greek world because he's taking what is broken in the universe and he's redeeming it. He's saying, listen, makarios, the idea that the Greek gods would have is that they would stir trouble up in the world and then they'd retreat to Mount Olympus and then they'd hang out. They were completely unaffected by all the problems and the suffering of the world. They were completely detached from it. So he's saying this, like, I'm gonna give you blessedness. I'm gonna give you blessedness bliss or happiness, the kind that is not affected by the world, that cannot be polluted by the world. I'm going to give you a kind of happiness. And in this series, what we're calling it is a forever happiness. We're calling it a forever happiness. I'm going to give you a forever happiness that will be untouchable, untouchable by the circumstances that you live in. Now that's a big promise that Jesus makes here. But the promise is, the promise is that I'm going to give you a forever happiness. But when we think about that, we tend to think about forever happiness as starting when we die. Like when we're in heaven, that one day that's going to happen. But actually that forever happiness, the word blessed here is in the present tense. It's not a future thing, it is a current thing. I'm going to start blessing you right now by giving you a forever happiness that will go on and on and on even into the new and next life. But this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, the problem is that we don't have a forever happiness. Like we don't experience happiness in an ongoing way. It's transitory, it's here, it's there. It doesn't seem to actually last. So he says something that I think is very profound. He's like, I'm going to give you a happiness that endures forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's not something that's going to be future tense. It's something that's going to be right now. But here's the challenge. Like for many of us, this is kind of what we're taught. And when I say this, you're gonna go, oh yeah, this is definitely what we're taught in our world today, okay? So what, here's what we're taught. We're taught that in order to be blessed, in order to be happy in this world, we have to focus on the present moment. Like our job is to basically focus on the here and now in such a way, watch this, in such a way that everything that comes along, we have to make sure we grab it and get it. Because if we don't, we're gonna miss out on the game of life. I've gotta make sure all my 
you know, vacations are the right vacations. I've got to make sure that my kids act exactly the right way. My job in order to be successful in this life in happiness terms is to grab every single bit of this world and make it work for me. Be fully present in every moment. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with being fully present in every moment, but we're Christians. Like this is not our only life. And so for us, there is not the frenetic need to go on the perfect vacation, to go to have the perfect car, to live in the perfect neighborhood. Why? Because we have forever. And so for us, the best part of our world, best part of our life is the eternal life that we have. Now that starts now. It's right now. Like you are living your eternal life. We are in that right now. And so we don't need to be worried because what happens for people is that they are constantly like, I need to be present in the moment. I need to make sure I grab every single bit of happiness this world has to offer. But at the end of the day, that actually doesn't work for us. It makes us less happy. Why? Because things are going to skate by. We're going to miss things. We're going to feel like we're not nearly as happy as everyone else. Have you ever noticed that in social media? People put out stuff on social media and man, I tell you what, like you watch Facebook or Instagram, man, everybody's having their best and most incredible life. And it's just not true. It's just not, you know, it's a lie. I mean, we should just, just, you know, ever every just put lie. Just, you know, just like <laughs> lie, just lie, you know, just lie. I mean, because it's, it's totally a lie. It's not true. It's not what reality is. And so for us, we have to recognize that our job is not to be fully present in this moment so that we can suck out every bit of happiness. Our job is to be happy. But look, but look what it says here. Back to our text. It says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples come to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying this, he's saying, if you really want to be blessed in the present tense, you have to have a future hope. If you're going to be blessed in the present tense, you have to have a future hope. What does that mean? That means that one day yours will be the kingdom of God. And here's how it works. Our job is not to be so present in this moment. Our job is to vision and to spend time imagining and spend time create, like remembering that one day we're gonna be in the kingdom of God with him. And that all of that stain and all that sorrow and all that pain that we've accumulated through life, one day we're gonna be resurrected and then we're gonna be glorified. And that word glorified simply means that all that stain is once and for all taken away from us. And so we're gonna be good. Those parts of you that have become almost like an identity I don't know, I'm just always sad. Or I'm just a depressed person. You know, I'm just afraid all the time. That's just me who I am. I don't talk to other people because I'm not good at that. It's just almost as if these broken pieces of who we are became who we are. At the end of all things, which is the beginning of all new things, God heals it all. He transforms us. And so if our job right now is to simply look at the moment and say, I'm going to try to derive as much happiness out of this moment as I possibly can, we're going to be filled with anxiety because life just doesn't work out that way. But if our focus is long-term, and the, all the apostles had this focus, like if it's long-term, if it's the kingdom of God, it rebounds onto us right now, and it changes the way that we feel about the world. Makarios, blessed, bliss happiness that lasts forever and ever and ever. So how does this work? Let me show you what this looks like. So uh, just do a little thought experiment here for a moment. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you're having money problems, but, 
but it, just think about it. If, you ha- if you've ever had money problems in your life, I mean, Kelly and I had money problems. When we first got married, we had like $60,000 in student loans and we made about eight bucks an hour. And so uh, that's a money problem, by the way. And, uh, and so uh, we've, we've had money problems. We've had not money problems. We've gone through challenges like that. But imagine that one day uh, somebody comes to you and says, hey, you've got a grandpa that you never knew about. And you know, somebody did something funky way back when. And uh, you've got a grandpa that you don't know about and he has no heirs and he's leaving you $250 million, right? I mean, it's a good day. Like that's legitimately a good day, right? You're gonna go, fantastic, that's great. Now, you know, here's the thing. How many of you with your money problems today would be worried if you knew that in two months you were gonna get that $250 million? The answer would be none of us. We'd be good, why? Because we know it's gonna be fixed. Because we know that the blessing far outpaces the curse. And that's exactly what the kingdom of God does for us. Our emphasis can't be in the here and now because this right here is not our blessing. This is what we're going to experience, little bits of blessing, foreshadowings, glimpses, but it's the beginning of a forever happiness that one day, when we see Jesus face to face, will completely heal our hearts, minds, and souls. Makarios, it means blessed. It says, it translates into bliss, it is a forever happiness. Jesus says, forever happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. He says, forever happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But who are these forever happy? Like, what, what is this? Well, he calls them poor in spirit, right? <laughs> poor in spirit. So let's just, let's just say at the very beginning here that poor in spirit has absolutely nothing to do with money. It just has nothing to do with money. It has to do with a condition of the heart, right? Poor in spirit, somebody who is humble, Somebody who, and poor in spirit doesn't mean somebody who walks around going, you know, I'm just a terrible person. I'm awful. I'm t-. In fact, we're going to learn in just a second that that's actually not the path that God has for us. Our heads are not to be down all the time, looking at the ground going, man, I'm just a terrible, awful person. That's not what God wants for us. So what I want to do is if poor in spirit is the opposite of pride, I want to describe what pride looks like. And you go, well, I know what pride looks like partially. We know what the obvious pride looks like. The obvious form of pride is self-exaltation. It's the person that you know in your life that you just don't like a whole lot because they're all about themselves, no matter what. It just, everything seems to rebound onto them, kind of like LeBron James. And, uh, and, and come on, that was good. Man, okay. So, so just somebody who makes it all about themselves in that moment, right? That's just kind of what, we know that person. That, that's that pr- kind of pride, self-exaltation is easy to spot. But here's the tricky one, and this is the one that actually looks a little bit more like weakness than sin, and it is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation is a form of pride. Self-condemnation is the same form of pride as self-exaltation in the sense that both of them declare something about ourselves that God did not declare. We take on an identity about who we are that God contradicts, right? And we're gonna look at that in a second. So, um, Years ago, when my wife and I uh, first got married, we lived in College Park. We lived on a third floor condominium uh, on, the golf court, on the golf course in Dubs Dread uh, Golf Course. The rent was four fifty a month. Man, that's good times. And, uh, and uh, we were, we were kind of hanging out up there. And uh, I would go out there in the mornings and I would read my Bible because I'm holy. And, uh, and I just kind of like, I'm just reading and reading and reading. But I'd watch these guys as they're kind of going down the, 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 the uh, what do you call that? There, there you go, the fairway. And so I'm a, I'm a huge sports guy, as you can tell. Uh, so so, so here, here they are, they're, you know, they tee the ball up, man, they just, whoosh, 
and they hit it and it's awesome. I mean, they'll get right up on the green. They're just, they're amazing. Like I just like, that was an amazing hit. And then, and then, and then they're up there on the, on the green and they're putting and they'll seven putt the thing. Like, you know, it's just like, you know, it took me one shot to get here, but it's almost like they have no motor control at all. They're just kind of, you know, and, and the ball just goes somewhere really random and weird, right? And, and in that moment, you know, I'm reading the Bible. This is why it's such a contrast. It's stuck in my mind. I'm reading the Bible and all of a sudden, I won't say the words, but they start with F and, uh, and like they just chuck their, their, their golf clubs into the sand trap and I just hear them, boom, expletive, expletive, expletive. Guy after guy is trying to comfort the other guy. I'm like, this is encouraging to you guys. This is relaxing to you. So, so, so here they are, but they're throwing their clubs. They're getting angry. The bam, you know, I saw that more than once. And, and, and here's what's going on. Like, it looks like self-condemnation because they're going, I stink. Why didn't I mind it better? Here's the reason why. When they hit that original shot, they thought it was just like Tiger Woods. See, I have a suspicion about golf. I think it's like crack. I think you get the first one for free. You know, they're like, try it. It's good. You know, it's all right, right? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that next one, you know, that first drive, you'd, you're like, I'm a golfer. You know, and it's like, wow, that's incredible. But the rest of it, you got to pay for, you know, and so you're going to spend the rest of your time trying to pay for it on the green. And, uh, and it seems like it just, it, it's so frustrating, but here's what's happening. Self-condemnation looks like a weakness. Like I'm just going, man, I stink because I'm embarrassed with my buddies that they two putted it. And, and I, you know, I'm doing the seven putt and I'm just like, oh, I'm so sorry guys, you know, and the other's not their whole pick it up, chuck it, you know, just whatever. Like I get frustrated. Why? Because I think I must be better. See, self-condemnation begins with the assertion that I'm actually better than I am. Self-condemnation begins with the assertion, and it doesn't matter if it's golf or if it's your appearance. Self-condemnation begins with the assertion, I'm better than this. And for some reason, I'm not living up to it. And as a result of that, I feel terrible. But both of these things are false. Self-exaltation is false when you stand with your chest puffed out and say, I'm great. You're standing in the presence of an almighty God who is truly great. And when you're self-condemning, you're, you're looking at yourself and you're saying, I'm not worth it. Some of you have this voice in your head and she or he has been with you for your whole life because you're going you're gonna to fall into one of these two categories naturally. You're gonna fall into the category of self-exaltation. For you, confidence is not a problem. Too much confidence is the problem. Too much you is the problem. But some of you are gonna fall into this self-condemnation category and you've got this little voice that you follow that follows you around everywhere. And every time you make a mistake, everyone's looking at you. you think, they think you're stupid. What's wrong with you? Why can't you ever do anything right? And she just screams this in your head. I'm gonna give you a very, very practical thing at the very end here that's going to show, you, show us kind of how to deal with that and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to push back on that because we absolutely are supposed to push back on that. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We hold the kingdom of heaven as preeminent and that has a rebounding effect on us. All of a sudden now me looking at the kingdom of God and saying, God, I love you. I love you. I'm for you. I'm for you. And I can't wait to be with you. That pulls us into that direction, right? Versus a, a mindset that says, hey, I'm all about right now. I'm all about just the here and now. And as a result, as a result, I find myself filled with anxiety. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. But being poor in spirit is based upon the idea that we're not prideful, that we're filled with a kind of teachability. 
So I'm gonna give you a case illustration right now in the Bible, an example of this, like two men who are uh, good examples, one of uh, good humility, being poor in spirit, and one of self-exaltation. All right, up on the screen, Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. We'll, uh, we'll read these things. Two men went up to, this is Jesus, by the way, talking, uh, telling the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee and a tax collector, right? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now listen, the Pharisee would actually find the place in which he could be seen by everybody. He would raise his hands up and he would pray prayers like this because he's wearing a big giant robe, a wonderful hat, phylacteries, which are like little, you know, tassels that were all over the place, right? They symbolized uh, holiness. The Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. By the way, the translation here, ladies, in some of this actually includes woman in here. So I'll do it with that, okay? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, right? Uh, Robbers, (laughs) evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm like, hey man, I'm standing right here. You know, like, can you, like, like, that's really gutsy for this guy. I thank you. I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or that guy, you know? I mean, (laughs) I just feel like I would have said something. All right, verse 12. So I'm gonna tell you all that I do. I fast twice a week. I give a 10th of all that I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He's kind of over here in the corner. He didn't take the preeminent spot. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. That's being poor in spirit. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is Jesus's ethic of being poor in spirit. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. The Bible says this. It says that pride's not even just a, it's not a weakness. It's actually the antithesis of the gospel. God opposes the proud, the Bible says. That means that he's actually going to put obstacles in your way if you walk with a prideful heart. And a prideful heart is a heart that's independent of God, a heart that believes that he's got self-sufficiency, a heart that says, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not an adulterer. I was having a conversation with a guy that I, uh, that I know that I frequent a place and, and he was there and, and uh, I, go to these, uh, I go to the same restaurants um, around town all the time because I wanna get to know people who are lost people because I spend time with Christians a lot. And so I have, there's a hotel in Winter Park that I go to where I actually do my messages. I don't do them in my office at, at, the, at, the, um, at the building. So I just sit there in the lobby and I'll have, uh, it's awesome because I'll have um, waiter after waiter, manager after manager, they'll sit down because they saw me just sitting there for, you know, six, eight, nine months. You know, I've been doing it now for like five years. So I know all the people, I'm literally the pastor for the Alphon Hotel, yeah. And so, so they'll come and they'll sit down and I'll talk about their marriages, we'll talk about life. And uh, I get free food. It's awesome. Like it's really like it's, it's really really good thing. So one of the guys sat down next to me the other day, and he and he, and he said he, he said preacher because he's not a Christian. He was preacher. What are you what are you preaching on this weekend? And I said, well, we're talking about pride. He goes, oh, that's awesome. I got that one licked. I was like, <laughs> cool. Uh, and I said, so tell me more about that. Tell me tell me how that works for you. And he goes, well, he goes, you know, I I try to do good to other people. And I'm like, that's a good start. That's a great start. He goes, I've never killed anyone. I'm like, it's a really low standard, bro. You know, I'm like, that's pretty much all of us here, you know? But the self-sufficient person, that's what they think. We look at this guy and we think, who, who would say, I'm not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer? I'm not a murderer? Everybody today. Like today, people would look at this and go, hey, the standard's super low and I'm killing it. I'm doing great. The prideful person is self 
exalting because they believe they actually fulfill the requirements. The poor in spirit person knows that these invisible walls that the prideful person can't see are things that have hurt them and hurt the people that they love and therefore you have this other guy and he's over here in the corner of the temple and he's praying and he's just, he's just, he's not hands up, he's not, and there's nothing wrong with putting your hands up and worship and praying but there's, nothing, there's something wrong about being the center of attention or constantly in the background Right? So here's this guy, and he's just in the background in the corner, and he's praying, and he's like, God, I know I've sinned. He's a tax collector. We don't even like tax collectors today. In the first century, if you were a tax collector, you, you basically had the power of Rome to throw someone in jail. So you could, ex- you could take taxes from people um, legitimately that Rome said that they had to pay, and then you could extort more money. And if they didn't pay you, that's why everybody hated them. So somehow in this story, you've got this tax collector, and he's in the background going, I know I'm not a good guy. Like, I know I'm a wreck. I know that I'm a sinner. And as a result of that, he looks to heaven. And in verse 14, when it says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God in the first century, that was a shocking twist. Because everybody looked at Pharisees and said, these guys are holy. Pharisees were really rich and therefore rich people, you know, are blessed by God and therefore hashtag blessed, you know, they've got it all together. It's got it all right. And so when he switches it here, he says, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, if you're gonna live a forever happiness, one that's gonna last forever, then you have to walk humbly. Think about all the ways in which pride have destroyed people in the world. Prideful people have done things that have been ultra destructive to our world. And sometimes we've been those people. Humility allows us to walk through life and around obstacle after obstacle after obstacle so that we don't have to live broken all the time. It's an example to the world around us. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do people who are poor in spirit look like? All right, just four things real quick here. We're gonna run through them real quick. One, people who are poor in spirit are teachable. Teachable people. That means that you have to look, when you look at the scriptures, Christian, when you look at the scriptures, You have to look at that. There are things in the Bible that you're not gonna like. I'm telling you right now, especially if you're new to this, by the way. There are gonna be some things that you read in the Bible and you're gonna, whoa, hold on a second. That doesn't sound right. But for us, the scriptures actually are an authority over us. And what does that mean? It means that when I look at the scriptures and I go, here's my life and it doesn't match up with what the Bible teaches, I'm the one that's wrong. And as a result, I've got to conform myself to it so that, watch this, so that my job, which is being an image bearer of God, like I'm creating his image, to be more like him I have to let the scriptures wash my broken heart. I have to let the scriptures wash my rebellious heart. I have to let the scriptures wash things that I've been trained in my whole life by the world to undo some of those things. And the only way to do that is to be teachable. See, the Pharisee wasn't teachable. He didn't like the fact that anyone else could come or approach his righteousness. That's why he pushed people down. I'm not a sinner. These guys are sinners. Number two, People who are poor in spirit don't take God for granted. Here's this tax collector who everyone hates. He stood at a distance in the temple from the Pharisee. He didn't take a preeminent spot. He just stood in the corner and he's like, if I can just hear from God, if I can just talk to God, if I can just hear my words. Number three, people who are poor in spirit are aware of their needs. He didn't even look up to heaven. He just, God, I just, I don't know what to do. I need you to fill me. I need you to forgive me. And that's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Number four, people who are poor in spirit know where their help comes from because the Pharisee looked to himself for his righteousness. 
And the tax collector looked to God for his righteousness. And there's where they're going to land the plane. This is how it ends. It says here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's, who's is, who is the theirs? For the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. It's also something that must be cultivated. It's like a spiritual gift. You've been given something by God that is uniquely you, but you also have to train yourself to use it well for it to make its maximum impact, okay? So I wanna talk about a practice in how to be poor in spirit. This is just something that helped me so much in my life. Quick story, there's a guy named Martin Luther in the Reformation. He actually started the, the, the Reformation. He was a Catholic priest. Martin had a, um, Luther had a, uh, like I'm first name with him. Uh, Lu- Martin, my buddy. Uh, Luther, Luther had, uh, Luther had a uh, overactive conscience. He was Catholic. And so uh, he did what uh, we just kind of did here, except you don't have to do it to a priest. You can go directly to God and ask forgiveness. But he would go to the priest, his father confessor, and he would say, Father, uh, forgive me for I've sinned. That's, that's the way they, they do it now. Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Uh, they didn't have that same language in the days of Luther, but the same concept. Father, forgive me for I've sinned. And he goes, all right, well, tell me your sins. And then he would confess his sins to him. He says, I was lustful. I coveted my brother's intellect. I struggled with feeling lazy, you know, and he would just lay out all of these things, just lay them all out. And he'd go, hey, listen, Luther, here's, here's the thing. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he goes, thank you. And he comes out and he's walking out of the abbey and he has a lustful thought and he runs back in really quick, right? And he says, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. And they're like, that fast, huh? Okay. So remember, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He leaves again. He did this over and over and over and just constantly coming back. And finally, you know, his father confessors like, Luther, I've got more to do than you, right? Like I've got other things. So here's you got, you have a grace problem. See, Luther believed that if he died in sin, that he would actually, you know, he would go to hell. And so every time he sinned, he would run back. And he says, listen, you have forgotten the grace of God, the goodness of the grace of God. And, and he goes, well, tell me more about that. And he used this Latin phrase. It's going to be up here on the screen, right? Simul iustus et peccator. Um, some people call it simul iustus et peccator. It's tomato, tomato. But, uh, but simul iustus et peccator. He said this. He said, Luther, you are simultaneously righteous and a sinner. See, we like to put ourselves in the category of one or the other. I'm killing it right now in my discipleship life. I'm doing really, really well. Saint or I've really fallen down and everything's a problem. He said, this is your problem. You believe that you're one or the other, but you are simultaneously righteous and a sinner. What does that mean? It simply means this. It means based on God's camera angle, you're one or the other. So from heaven, the camera angle looking down on you as a Christian right now, God sees you, if, you're, if you are a Christian, he doesn't see your failures and your weaknesses or the stain of their sin on your life. He doesn't see the choices that you make. He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ as sufficient and absolutely perfect. So when the Bible says in Romans chapter five that we can actually stand boldly before the presence of God, whom the angels shield their eyes from, that circle the throne, says that we can stand boldly. We can not because we're awesome, but because we're forgiven. Because now we have the righteousness of God, the holiness of Jesus. So from that camera angle, you are completely 100% righteous. Now on the other side, when we use the camera angle of the world, and we look at each other. You look at me and you go, Mike's a sinner. And I can look at you and go, you're a sinner too, right? And so that camera angle shows us that we are sinners. So these two things are simultaneously true about your life. God looks at you and sees you absolutely perfect. And then we're going to look at each other and see ourselves as continuing to sin. That's true about you right now. Now, he said, Luther, here's what I want you to do with this. And so if you're a self-condemning person, 
You need to pay attention to this. If you're a self-exalting person, you need to pay attention to this. When you walk around in self-condemnation, when you walk around in self-condemnation, I stink, I'm terrible, I'm never gonna be enough, no one's gonna ever you know, value me or my opinion, my thought, my ideas. Here's what you need to do. You need to turn and look at the other side of what God did for you in the gospel. That Jesus actually was sent by the Father because the Father's love for you was so dramatic. He chose you, that he loves you so much that he sent his one and only begotten son that he would be beaten, brutalized, and died for you. That's how much he loves you. So when you walk in self-condemnation, you need to remind yourself of the love of Christ. That over here, he sees you as perfect because the gospel has made you perfect. God has made you whole in his sight. When you walk in pride, you need to see the other side of the gospel. And that is that we are in need of Jesus because we walk as sinners. That we're fallen and we're broken. See, you're not going to be one or the other. You're always going to be both. And there's going to be a tension that you're going to have to struggle with for the rest of your life. And in this tension is how we walk poor in the spirit. So if you feel like you're down, remind yourself of the fact that God loves you. And if you feel self-exalting, remind yourself that God died for you because you needed to. And at the end of the day, this is how this tension right here is how we're going to take our next step toward Christ. This is what's going to allow us to live poor in spirit. This is the beginning of a forever happiness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beginning of this series, Lord, as we talk about a forever happiness. We're so grateful that you give us both perspectives. Not just that we're sinners and fallen, but you also call us saints. You call us beloved. You call us sons and daughters. And Father, thank you that you remind us that we are still dependent upon you. We are complete sinners, Lord. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and we do it every single day, God. But Father, let us not be driven to one end or the other. Instead, Lord, help us not to exalt ourselves because we know that that will lead to our humbling. But Father, help us to humble ourselves, not in a broken way that speaks bad of ourselves, but God, help us to humble ourselves in the way that you would have us be humble, teachable. It's in your name we pray, amen.